Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. If you can please stand, we'll begin in prayer. The prayer I'm about to recite is a prayer for the dead. It is one of the most ancient prayers in our tradition. It comes from the second century. It was found in an inscription in a cemetery in Syria. And we're saying this prayer for the repose of the souls of all of those who are the victims of sin, the ones who were massacred today. All evil is the consequence of sin. And Christ conquered sin and conquered death. Let us pray to the Lord. Master of heaven and earth, who de desires not the death of the sinner, but that he turn from his ways and live. Look upon thy servants who have departed this life and grant that they repose in a place of light and a place of happiness and peace where there is no grief, nor pain, nor sighing. And since thou art a gracious God and the lovest mankind, forgive them every sin they have committed by thought, by word, or by deed, for there is not a man who lives and does not sin, and thou alone art without sin. Thy righteousness is everlasting, and thy word is true, and thou art the resurrection, and the life, and the repose of thy departed servants, O Christ our God. And may give glory to thee with thine eternal Father, thine all-holy, good, and life-creating spirit, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Welcome back, Robert Riley. Thank you so much, Monica. Thank you, Father. Could we say another prayer? St. Michael, the archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the heavenly hosts, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. Thank you. Well, welcome back. Gluttons for punishment. Some of you apparently watched the recording of this on the ICC website and decided to come anyway. I want to thank Monica. I want to thank the Institute for Catholic Culture for hosting these two talks. Uh, it is just a sign of the moral and intellectual integrity and courage of this group and of you people. Uh, I was saying to one of you on the way in here, uh, I love coming to these events, whether I'm in the audience or a speaker, uh, because it lets me know all is not lost. All is not lost. Look at you. Now this week, last week if you recall, we went through some of the philosophical background to this issue, the teleological Aristotelian view that we have purposes, inbuilt ends in our lives, that we are ordered to the good and the anti-teleological view, which I use Rousseau to illustrate, uh, that denies that we're ordered to any ends and that we get to make up our own purposes. I forgot last week to quote 
an American in the 20th century who did a huge amount of damage, John Dewey, who puts nicely in one sentence this Rousseauian perspective. And he said, man's nature is to have no nature. Man's nature to have no nature. So we're not ordered to any good. We get to the, the purposes we serve, we create through our own wills and we serve our own appetites. And now we have a version of the government that thinks that since there are no ends or purposes in built in human beings, its job is to create a safe space in which we can all be ruled by our passions no matter how disordered they may be. So it's a safe space government that creates the areas in which you can indulge your passions. Uh, that is so long as your passion isn't the truth and to address the fact that some of these passions are disordered and uh, harmful to the people whom they possess and to society at, a, at whole, as a whole, as large. Now, the other thing I wanted to make uh, clear to you is I, we, we pointed out that what's being contested here are not simply some sexual peccadilloes, but the reality itself. The nature of reality is being contested. As you noted last week, when I quoted from this homosexual interlocutor, he had to admit uh, that to sustain his point of view, uh, he had to attest to the purposeless of the world, the purposelessness of existence. And that indeed is the price paid for this rationalization of homosexual misbehavior. But how, how do we find that in the US Constitution? I'm writing a book on the American founding right now and I, I, I haven't seen any of our founders vaguely express a view like this. Well, I can tell you how President Obama does it and it's, uh, it's the way other people do it too. And the key is found in his book called, of all things, The Audacity of Hope. I say of all things because hope is a theological virtue and I just, it's, that's not what I see here. So here, here is what Obama says in The Audacity of Hope. Quote, implicit in the Constitution's structure and the very idea of ordered liberty, the very idea of ordered liberty, was a rejection of absolute truth, of the infallibility of any idea or ideology or theology or ism, and any tyrannical consistency that might lock future generations into a single unalterable course, unquote. In other words, truth leads to tyranny. That's what he's saying here. Truth does not set you free, it imprisons. Moral relativism sets you free. And of course, to sustain this view, he has to read that moral relativism back into the American founding and the founding documents. However, the, more, the American founders were not moral relativists, as you well know. After reading that passage, I need a sip of my adult beverage. What I'd like to do tonight 
is I, there's a huge amount of material to go through. So I'll try to address these things quickly. I want to talk about some of the things I go over in this book. I then want to go to the court background, a quick survey of the court decisions that have led us up to the current disaster, then explicate the Obergefell decision from late June, which mandated homosexual marriage throughout this country. And I also want to suggest to you why the pro-family cause has been so consistently losing in court. I will give you a critique of the way they have been arguing in court. I don't know how aware you are of it in detail, but some of what I will tell you will shock you. When you think that's what our side has been saying, no wonder we lost. But we'll get to that a little later. Now, last week I did not get uh, to go into any great, great detail on the lessons from biology about homosexual behavior. I did mention that you can't use an exit as an entrance and you can't put a generative organ into an excretory organ without confusing your body and causing a great deal of damage to it. And the huge uh, diminution in the life expectancy of those who engage in this behavior. For instance, while MSM, male sex with males, make up for only a tiny percentage of the population, they account for 72% of primary and secondary syphilis cases, plus 79% of HIV diagnoses among men, and a significant percentage of other STDs, sexually transmitted diseases. Where, where are the warning labels? I don't know if any of you still smoke, but you can see on your package there's a warning label. I have uh, wine with dinner every night, but I, there's the warning label on the bottle. If you overindulge, I've never been pregnant, so I ignore that part of the warning <laughs> label. Uh, because if you abuse alcohol, cirrhosis of the liver, or other uh, uh, damages to your health, smoking can cause lung cancer. The warning labels are everywhere. Where's the warning label on this? Far more fatal, much higher rate of mortality. Where's the warning label? All of the medical and physical consequences of this have to be denied. Otherwise, the rationalization for homosexual behavior could not succeed. So despite the cost, this is put up. And as you know, when homosexuals were contributing to the blood supply, uh, hemophiliacs and others were infected with HIV AIDS as a consequence. So here I read from last December, uh, a homosexual on the Huffington Post, quote, blood donation ban is only the first barrier to medical equality for gay men, unquote. So you have a right to donate contaminated blood that's going to transmit this virus to other people in the name of equality. Once again, just a tiny little 
indicator on how deep into unreality uh, people have fallen as a result of this. Now, the other thing about marriage, I mentioned to you, the, 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 the cause here really isn't marriage because so very few of the few active homosexuals will actually get married. It's the sanctification of sodomy that completes the rationalization, which was the objective. Now, why, uh, how do we know this? What, many married people here, I'm married. Our love, in other words, is spousal. And the person whom we love is irreplaceable because of the spousal nature of this love. And the expression of that comes in, guess what? Fidelity. Monogamy. And despite the depiction of the United States as a totally sex-obsessed country, actually, uh, people who are married, the vast majority of them, 94% of married people and 75% even of cohabiting people, had only one partner in the prior year. Now, if homosexual, quote-unquote, love is spousal, as they claim it to be, would not one then expect to see something comparable in the terms of monogamy and fidelity? Yes? But that's not what we find. In a famous book written by a homosexual, the male couple, its investigators found that of 160, 156 couples studied, only seven had maintained sexual fidelity. Of the 100 couples that had been together for more than five years, none had been able to maintain sexual fidelity. So this mythology that you're presented with daily in the Washington Post about the faithful homosexual couples who've been together for 30 years, is a myth. That is a, a infinitesimal minority of homosexuals. And even of those who maintain together, they, they are not faithful to each other in, in that sexually faithful. They're not. In fact, the ones that last are the ones who have agreed to have sex open. Um, well, this should hardly be a surprise, should it? Because fidelity is based upon a chaste relationship. And any homosexual act is a violation of chastity. So how would one think that someone who is behaving unchastely would behave faithfully? It's an oxymoron, just as is the so-called um, homosexual marriage. Here we go from a study. This was from some years ago. 43% of male homosexuals estimated having sex with 500 or more different partners, and 28% with 1,000 or more different partners. 79% said they, that more than half of these partners were strangers. That doesn't sound too spousal to me. In other words, they are replaceable. It's, 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 these are actions which are in their nature pornographic. As Joseph Pieper said, you remove the fig leaf from the genitals and put it on the human face. And that's what this behavior reflects. Um, and 70%, or so 
half were with strangers, 70% said more than half were with men with whom they had sex only once. A 1977 survey of 2,583 active homosexual men in Australia reported only 15% reported having fewer than 11 sex partners to date, while on the other end of the spectrum, 15% had over 1,000 sex partners. 82% had over 50 partners, and nearly 50% had over 100 partners. Well, you get the picture. If this, this couldn't be spousal. All right. Now, a, a good part of my book, the largest chapter in my book, and to tell you the truth, you can imagine the amount of depressing material I had to go through to write this. which I had to find, hide from my children with a picture of the Holy Family on my desktop. I'm not kidding. It got so very, very dark, I would simply have to pray, St. Michael, Our Lady, help me through this. Despite that very, very dark material, what depressed me most was reading the court cases. As the Chinese say, a fish rots from the head. And here we're reading from the highest constitutional court in the land and the federal appellate courts decisions that wouldn't get by a freshman class in ethics. I mean, it's just how could these men at this level have been so thoroughly intellectually corrupted? That's distressing. So. This longest chapter called Inventing Morality marches through these decisions and uh, explicates them. I'm just going to mention a few uh, very briefly so you know how the march took place. Back in the 50s, Griswold versus Connecticut, in which a early version of Planned Parenthood had uh, provoked the case by selling contraceptives to a married couple. The Connecticut Supreme Court at that time found in favor of the law which prohibited the sale of contraceptives to anyone. Goes to the Supreme Court and they decide they've invented this area of privacy and uh, married people should be able to by contraceptives. That was the conclusion of the court in Griswold versus Connecticut. But then the question arises, well, what about unmarried adults? Shouldn't they be free to buy contraceptives? Aren't our rights individual, after all? And lo and behold, in Eisenstadt versus Baird, sure enough, the court said, any adult has the right to buy contraceptives. Well, what about children? Don't they have any rights? Sure enough. Carry population uh, services finds that indeed children have the right to contraceptives. And then, of course, we come to the logical conclusion to this. If we all have rights to contraceptives, 
what happens if the contraceptive fails and there's a conception? Well, you didn't intend that because otherwise you wouldn't have used a contraceptive. Now, should you be penalized by the existence of this unborn child in the exercise of your rights? Are you now going to be obligated with the burden of this child? Oh, no. No, no, no. That's a violation. This, the existence of this child has violated your rights and therefore can be disposed, as Roe v. Wade refused to recognize an unborn child as a person. The 14th Amendment was ratified in the United States to prevent precisely this in ensuring that black Americans could not be stripped of their rights as human beings by denying that they were persons, which is, of course, what the court decision in, in 1860 did. It was deny that blacks were persons. They were property. So the 14th Amendment was passed to prevent this from ever happening again. But the Roe v. Wade court got around this by denying that these unborn children were persons. And then we have uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, in which we have this bit of wisdom. You see, here, here the troubling problem arose that Pennsylvania had a law requiring the woman, mother, who wished to have an abortion to tell the father of the child or her husband. So she had to inform her husband, not get his consent. No, no, his consent wasn't required, just to tell him. And this was found unconstitutional. Let's read why. The court said, quote, a significant number of women will likely be prevented from obtaining an abortion just as surely as if Pennsylvania had outlawed the procedure entirely. Furthermore, it cannot be claimed that the father's interest, it cannot be claimed that the father's interest in the fetus's welfare is equal to the mother's protected liberty, unquote. In other words, a father might act to save the life of his child which would be an infringement on the right of the mother to kill it. Now up in a bas relief on one wall of the court is a depiction of Solomon, who determined who the real mother was as the one who would surrender her child to prevent it from being killed. And now this court reverses the wisdom of Solomon by saying the real parent is the one who would take the child's life. So the Pennsylvania law was overturned by the Supreme Court. Now, the American Psychiatric Association, I go over this in some detail in the chapter on sodomy and science because of course we've all been told that homosexuality is not any kind of psychological or psychiatric disorder and the behavior 
is perfectly fine. Well, that's a fairly recent change. Because in the American Psychiatric Association's uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is sort of the Bible of psychiatry, they had defined homosexuality until 1973 as a mental illness, as a sociopathic personality disturbance, and then they lightened up on that and called it just a sexual deviation. Now the homosexual movement knew it would either stand or fall on making sure that that definition of homosexuality was removed from the, the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. So they waged a campaign to uh, change it, to get rid of it, and this was done in 1973. Now, what happened? Was there uh, a new, was there new research? Was there a scientific discovery? Had there been some study done shown that this was not a disorder? That everybody's fine? Well, no, there wasn't. There was no scientific basis for the change. I want to give you a little insight in how the change actually took place. The president-elect of the American Psychiatric Association at that time, a very influential man, was Dr. John Spiegel. Here is what his granddaughter revealed many, many years later. Quote, to hear my family tell it, it was my grandfather alone who banished those 81 words, defining homosexuality as a disorder, from the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. When I was young, the family legend was that my grandfather, president of the American Psychiatric Association, single-handedly changed the DSM because he was a big-hearted visionary, a man unfettered by prejudice who worked on behalf of the downtrodden, so a noble figure. However, this view of her grandfather had to be discarded after the family went on vacation to the Bahamas to celebrate the grandfather's 70th birthday. So she relates this, I remember it well. I also remember my grandfather stepping out from his beachfront bungalow on that first day, followed by a small, well-built man, a man that later during dinner, my grandfather introduced to a shocked family as his lover, David. David was the first of a long line of very young men that my grandfather took up with after my grandmother's death. It turned out, however, that my grandfather had had gay lovers throughout his life, had even told his wife-to-be that he was a homosexual two weeks before the wedding. So uh, he was no longer seen as a purely enlightened visionary, but as a closeted homosexual with a very particular agenda. Now, do you remember how I began last week? I quoted from Aristotle, quote, men start revolutionary changes for reasons connected with their private lives, unquote. So the reason connected to Dr. Spiegel's private life was that he was a practicing homosexual. And he needed that change in the diagnostic manual to help complete the rationalization for his homosexual behavior. Now the homosexuals who 
campaigned and effectively got this change from a couple of lesbians. This was always more of a political decision than a medical decision. It was a political move. There was no science behind this. It was all politics. All right, before we get on to the current disaster, I just want to read this in conclusion because it gives, the, it, it encapsulates the broad perspective. Once sex was detached from diapers, the rest became more or less inevitable. If serial polygamy is okay, and contraceptive sex is okay, and abortion is okay, what could be wrong with a little sodomy? First, short circuit the generative power of sex through contraception, then kill its accidental offspring, and finally celebrate its use in ways unfit for generation. Contraception used to be proscribed, then it was prescribed, and now it has become almost obligatory in the contraceptive mandate in the Affordable Care Act. I don't know uh, if you read about the appellate court decision, the federal court decision this week against the Little Sisters the, who operate these nursing homes. The court is now uh, supported the Obama administration in forcing the Little Sisters to participate in this contraceptive scheme. Note the, nation, the nature of rationalization. We are in the enforcement phase. The rationalization for any sexual misbehavior is not secure until it is universalized and enforced. And the courts have become the instrument of enforcement. Which brings us to the Obergefell decision which completes the rationalization and sanctifying sodomy as the basis of marriage. Now, <clears throat> this was the victory of Rousseau over Aristotle, the victory of the anti-teleological view over the teleological view. The larger price of this victory are the very laws of nature and of nature's God upon which this country is founded. This imperils our republic. And in the dissenting opinions, Justice Scalia, Justice Roberts, Justice Alito were not shy in saying something of that very nature. If we have time, I'll quote from them. Now, from the Windsor decision, which is where my book ends in terms of court decisions in which uh, Justice Kennedy found that uh, homosexual marriage trumped the Defense of Marriage Act and found unconstitutional the parts of the Defense of Marriage Act that prevented this lesbian in New York from getting the tax benefits from her dead spouse, lesbian spouse, uh, from this marriage in Canada. 
But let, let us go through some decisions of the past year which illustrate the march of unreality as it led up to the Obergefell decision at the end of June. An ever-increasing loss of reality. Here we had in the Ninth uh, Circuit Court of Appeals in 2014, just a little over a year ago, Judge Michael McShane wrote his opinion uh, staying the ruling that invalidated Oregon's constitution defining marriages between a man and a woman. So here's the way he did it. Quote, I believe that if we can look for a moment past gender and sexuality, we can see in these same-sex plaintiffs nothing more or less than our own families, families we would expect our constitution to protect if not exalt in equal measure, unquote. This is an, an extraordinary remark that says, in effect, if we can only look past what something is, we can see something else there. <laughs> if we can look past gender and sexuality, we can't see a family because no families are generated if there's no sexuality and gender. So if we can only look, if we can only look past the giraffe, we can see a donkey. That's a lot to look past. Now in Virginia, those of you who are Virginia citizens, as am I, we had last year uh, US District Judge Arenda Wright Allen find the Virginia Constitution and the Code of Virginia, which define marriages between a man and a woman, as unconstitutional. She uh, began her decision by, with the famous quote, all men are created equal, which she said came from the US Constitution. I thought Jefferson wrote that in the Declaration of Independence. No, Judge Wright Allen thought it was in the Constitution. Someone pointed it out and they changed it on the, web, the court website to remove <laughs> that slight embarrassment of this great constitutional lawyer. Now, uh, she of course found there was no rational basis for defining marriages between a man and a woman. And that um, the law, I'm quoting her, these laws limit the fundamental right to marry only to those Virginia citizens willing to choose a member of the opposite gender for a spouse. Well, that's not true. Brothers and sisters can't get married. An insane person can't get married. A minor and an adult can't get married. So not even that, just that, not even that is accurate. Here's my favorite line from her ruling, quote, homosexual persons meet all the legal requirements for marriage in Virginia, except for the fact that they are the same gender. <laughs> Once again, the only thing that prevents a giraffe from being a donkey is that it's a giraffe. I think that Judge Wright Allen would have failed Abraham Lincoln's famous quiz in which he asked, if we call a tail a leg, how many legs does a dog have? Four? No, five? No, four. Because a tail isn't a leg. But she thinks that um, it is, apparently. Now, once you accept the basic unreality, uh, it spreads. And therefore, we find in her decision uh, about the lesbian couple who brought the case, quote, Miss Townley gave birth to the couple's 
daughter, unquote. But of course she didn't. The child was the daughter of Miss Townley and a man, not of her lesbian partner, who could not possibly be Miss Shaw's daughter, nor could Miss Shaw be the child's parent, as it is impossible for her to be the father. But if you're willing to look past that, she could be the parent. So now one expects, expects such constitutional and moral illiteracy from the anti-natural family forces. But what about from our side? What about from this famous uh, Proposition 8 case in California, which was lost in federal court and then eventually lost in the Supreme Court, which wiped out the definition of marriage in California, which the voters of California had passed to amend their constitution. But they, pst, that doesn't matter. Let's figure out how the pro-family forces argued their case. And it was done by a man, super lawyer, lawyer Chuck Cooper. And he said in his case that really we ought to hit the pause button because this uh, homosexual marriage is so new, we don't know yet how it would work out. What? Um, that's not a really strong opening. <laughs> now, so he, Cooper suggested it was a lack of knowledge concerning what unnatural marriage might do to natural families that led to skepticism as to its soundings rather than the laws of nature and of nature's God. Now, Cooper took this very interesting position in the case that it was a state's rights issue and that whatever the people of California had decided, it was their right to decide in respect to marriage because marriage had already always been defined by the states. So he never spoke to what he called the public policy merits of whether indeed homosexual marriage was good or evil, whether sodomy was good or evil. Here's what he said. The heart of our defense from beginning to end was the simple proposition that people of goodwill can reasonably disagree over whether marriage should be redefined to include same-sex couples and that the Constitution therefore leaves resolution of the controversial public policy issue in the hands of the voters of each state. Um, our position, therefore, did not take sides on the public policy issue. Indeed, I stated that if the tables were turned, if California's voters had adopted gay marriage, as voters of several states now have, I would be no less willing to defend their right to make that decision. Did you get that? If the voters of California had decided to adopt gay marriage, he would have been just as willing to defend their decision to do that. Do you know what this is redolent of? Are the famous Lincoln-Douglas debates over slavery in the United States. The Douglas position was the states are free to decide whether to be slave states or free states. It's up to them. So it's just the popular sovereignty of the state will decide. There's nothing we can know about slavery that's good or evil in and of itself. So people can simply decide whether to be, have slave states or free. 
Lincoln, of course, objected to that and say, you don't have a right to do what is wrong. And that slavery is in of itself an evil and it is therefore not a proper subject for popular sovereignty since it denies the humanity of certain of the American people. So Lincoln fought like a tiger against the Douglas position in these debates. Cooper, so supposedly defending the pro-natural family movement, took the Douglas perspective, leaving the homosexual movement to monopolize the moral issue, which they did very effectively. So I wondered, you know, when I was reading the transcripts of the trial, I said, well, I'm not a constitutional lawyer. I'm not even a lawyer. Maybe there's some, you know, clever, some kind of clever thing I'm missing here. No, there wasn't anything clever at all. So why wasn't Cooper making the moral argument on which the thing either stands or falls? Well, we found out that the reason for his incapacity surfaced in 2014 when he revealed actually that he had taken sides. Quote, my daughter Ashley's path in life has led her to happiness with a lovely young woman named Casey and our family and Casey's family are looking forward to celebrating their marriage in just a few weeks, unquote. Cooper explained, quote, my views evolve on issues of this kind the same way as other people's do and how I view this down the road may not be the way I view it now or how I viewed it 10 years ago. He's evolving just like President uh, Obama and uh, Vice President Biden. By the way, I always enjoyed Vice President Biden when he said, oh, it's all a matter of who you love. It's just a matter of who you love. And I said, well, that's both substantively and grammatically incorrect. <laughs> it should be whom you love. Love is the verb. Who is the subject and whom is the object? Because if you say it the way he does, you have two subjects without an object, which is kind of the problem with homosexual marriage. <laughs> you know, we don't have time to do this, but my, my professor in, in graduate school, Harry Jaffa, a great American who did more than anybody to resuscitate the natural law thinking in the United States through his work on Lincoln and then back to the founding, he had a debate with this guy, Cooper, 25 years ago, which if anyone had paid attention, showed that Cooper was an historicist and a legal positivist. And I thought, who the heck paid this man to defend the California Constitution when if they'd done their homework, they could have found out this was not the guy to do it. All right, let's get down to someone on the opposing side characterizing why the pro-family movie has lost. And this is from Judge Richard Posner in the Seventh Circuit Court in which he decided against Indiana and Wisconsin laws defining marriages between a man and a woman. Pay attention, because this is the, sometimes you learn the most important thing from the other side. Quote, the state, in this case Wisconsin, does not mention Justice Alito's invocation, and he's referring now back to just Justice Alito's dissent in the Windsor decision. So he's saying Wisconsin doesn't mention uh, the, 
the moral case against same-sex marriage, which Alito states in his dissent that others explain the basis of the institution in more philosophical terms, they argue that marriage is essentially the solemnizing of a comprehensive, exclusive, permanent union that is intrinsically ordered to producing new life even if it does not always do so, unquote. See, he's quoting Alito there. Then Judge Posner said, that is a moral argument for limiting marriage to heterosexuals. The state, Wisconsin, does not mention the argument because, as we said, it mounts no moral arguments against same-sex marriage." Unquote. So there you go. So, so Wisconsin lost. But that was in an appellate court. So that decision was appealed and, of course, went to the Supreme Court and was the basis of the Obergefell decision. Now, I read the briefs that Wisconsin submitted and what some of the other states submitted to the Obergefell decision. Let me read you from Michigan's brief, because we need to know why, why, why we're losing here. Quote, this case is not about the best marriage definition. It is about the fundamental question regarding how our democracy resolves such debates about social policy, unquote. Well, yes, it, it, that's part of it. It is part of it. But it's, only, it's, not a, it's not just a procedural question. It's a substantive one. So um, after giving a thoroughly inadequate description of what marriage is, the, the Michigan brief gives this characterization of the same sex view that, quote, so they're characterizing the same sex view, that, that marriage is primarily about commitment with gender and biological procreation taking less prominent roles. From this perspective, marriage is a commitment that grounds couples and provides familial stability, unquote. What purpose did the authors of the Michigan brief have in participating in the denial of reality of their opponents? Do grapes in the process of winemaking take a less prominent role in a winemaking process that uses no grapes? <laughs> Is a non-grape a less prominent grape? How can you say that these things take a less prominent role in homosexual marriage when they can't exist? So Michigan adds this asinine observation, quote, importantly, neither view stigmatizes the other. They are simply different conceptions of what the marriage institution should be, unquote. Well, yes, they're, they're, they're in fact opposite, totally contradictory. And you're not going to stigmatize the views of the other side? Well, guess what, Michigan? You've just been stigmatized. The view that marriage is between a man and a woman has just been stigmatized. The 50 million voters in America who voted to support their state constitutions in this definition have now been stigmatized. Anyone who knows there is a rational basis for natural marriage has now been stigmatized because apparently the lawyers for this brief didn't want to stigmatize anything. The difference in these views, says the brief, 
is not that one side promotes equality, justice, and tolerance, while the other endorses inequality, injustice, and intolerance. Well, then what is the difference? Are right and wrong simply two different views of morality, neither of which is false? Michigan was tying the noose around its own neck, but at least it was consistent in Judge Posner's words in giving no moral arguments against same-sex marriage, unquote. Now I'm going to give you my principal diagnosis of why the pro-natural family movement has been so consistently losing, both in the courts and in the public fora. The near obsessive avoidance by a large part of the pro-natural family movement of anything demeaning to the proponents of same-sex marriage and the subsequent absence from the conversation of the actual nature of homosexual acts took the heart out of the argument against homosexual marriage. This avoidance inadvertently achieved a principal objective of the homosexual movement's strategy, as laid out 25 years ago in a famous book called After the Ball, to deflect attention from what homosexuals actually do. For the pro-family movement, this was more or less like arguing against racists without ever mentioning racism for fear of demeaning racists. The point should have been to treat these views, not the people who hold them, with the detestation they deserve. The way Lincoln treated slavery. What is shameful should be shamed. My dear friend, Professor Angela Cotavilla wrote this about Lincoln, quote, and you'll see the exact parallels. Lincoln, following John Quincy Adams, pointed again and again to the slaveholders' efforts to silence the debate about slavery's moral and political effects as evidence of the slaveholders' threat to the freedom of whites as well as of blacks. Like Adams, Lincoln pressed slavery's hard, ugly realities upon audiences that preferred to evade them. Oh, let's, no, no, it's states' rights. It's not really about the moral character of slavery. Lincoln brushed away the euphemisms and legal constructs in describing the slave trade's merchandising of human beings, unquote. Unfortunately, the pro-natural family movement largely forswore pressing the hard, ugly realities of homosexual behavior on the consciences of the American people. Now, the current retreat to the position of defending religious freedom means that the issue of the immorality of sodomy and other homosexual acts has most likely been abandoned for good. This is and was a terrible substantive and strategic error. It basically gives away the whole issue. Because if sodomy is not wrong, then not allowing it to serve as the basis of marriage must be bigotry. How could it not be bigotry then? To contend that it is not, one must show that sodomitical behavior is against the laws of nature and of nature's God. 
That is the only possible reason it cannot be advanced as a right. If sodomy is right, it is wrong to exclude it as the basis for marriage. If sodomy is wrong, it cannot be the basis of marriage because of the, has more than hesitation, the avoidance of this issue. As unpleasant as it is about what homosexuals actually do, that is what cut the ground out from underneath the pro-natural family movement. That is why we have been losing. Now, onto the Obergefell decision, this culmination, this ultimate denial of reality, led by none other than Justice Kennedy. By the way, I've got to tell you this. I, the, a couple of years ago, I saved a quote from Justice Kennedy uh, talking to a group of law students. And he said, quote, the nature of injustice is you can't see it in your own times, unquote. Now, he repeated this almost verbatim in the Obergefell decision, quote, the nature of injustice is that we may not always see it in our own times, unquote. Well, then what does he think he's doing? If this is so, well, I mean, the corollary to this insight is if you cannot see injustice in your own times, then neither can you see justice. So Kennedy uh, resolves this troubling conundrum with, with his historicism. It's the times that define the truth. Historicism is simply a, a variation of uh, moral relativism. We can't really know any transcendent truths. Uh, we are formed by the forces of history, and um, so therefore we understand reality uh, differently from those who preceded us who were formed by other forces of history. So there are no transcendent principles to which we can appeal by which we know what is just and what is unjust. Every American founder knew slavery was unjust. And I know this is what Kennedy is alluding back to the slavery in America's past and our great declaration saying all men are created equal. Well, we didn't treat everyone equally, but not one single founder didn't know that that was wrong. They knew it was wrong. They said it was wrong. They said this great evil someday had to be extirpated from the United States because it was against its founding principles, but it couldn't be done in any reasonable way now nor could we have formed a union without the agreement of the states in which there were slaves. Uh, but no one said that this is good. It was only later in the 19th century that the South developed this ideology to justify slavery. So you can know what is just and unjust, and your understanding of this justice is not simply conditioned by the forces of history and accident. There are transcendent principles that are available to our reason and we can apprehend them. That's the basis of our country. We hold these truths. It didn't say today, and Justice Kennedy can hold something else tomorrow. Our founders fought against something called the divine right of kings and the absolutism and arbitrariness that that represented. 
We are now suffering under the divine right of judges, where everybody is absolute and arbitrary as were the divine right of kings, exponents, and must be opposed in every way we can to save this country. We know in these decisions that each step of the way has required the consideration of the act of sodomy as morally equivalent to heterosexual coitus. And now finally to the marital act itself. The Obergefell decision took that last step. The Supreme Court of the United States has now held that an essentially non-generative and non-unitive act is equivalent to or as good as an essentially generative and unitive act. Thus, sodomy and other homosexual acts are as good as heterosexual marital union. On this particular theory, peculiar theory, Justice Kennedy has based his much wanted uh, freedom for homosexuals to marry. The freedom to marry, however, is teleological order, teleologically ordered. By the ends of marriage, neither of which can be met by homosexual behavior. Without naming them, Justice Kennedy spoke of, quote, the transcendent purposes of marriage, unquote. It is precisely these transcendent purposes which are both unitive and procreative. Marriage is prior to the state. Remember going through Aristotle's politics begins with a man and a woman and a family and therefore independent of it in its substance. The state may regulate it for the purposes of the common good, but may not change its ends because its ends do not originate in the state. In fact, the ends of marriage are independent of human will altogether. The freedom to marry cannot include an abuse of this freedom any more than the freedom of speech can include the right to lie. But remember, as we said last week, sodomy is to sex what blindness is to sight. And now the court has told us that blindness is the same as sight. So the court has now denied the principle of non-contradiction and therefore entered into metaphysical madness. You know, I've had the experience in my life of um, dealing with several uh, psychotic paranoids. And once you understand the premise on which uh, paranoids are operating, everything they do is completely logical. Completely logical and consistent with the premise. The only problem is that the premise uh, is completely disconnected from reality. And that's why they're insane. Justice Kennedy, as we follow his decisions from Lawrence versus Texas to Windsor to Obergefell, is, is like these people. He's completely logical. It's only his premise that is disconnected from reality. However, the, the paranoid people with whom I've had experience don't deny the principle of non-contradiction. 
but Kennedy and his confreres have. So in a way, they're in greater need of help than the paranoid people. I know the court is not an asylum, but they're certainly acting as if it is. Are there things in Kennedy, once you leave reality, you can say anything. As Kennedy did in his decision, referring to the condition of homosexuality as immutable. And then he gives a citation to support it from the American Psychological Association. So I went to read the citation, which nowhere says the condition is immutable. It says it's hard to change, but they don't say it's immutable. I mean, he doesn't even... And my reaction to people about immutability of the homosexual condition is, well, how about Mrs. Bill de Blasio in New York? The mayor of New York's wife. She was a lesbian. And they've been happily married for some years with two kids. Sounds kind of mutable to me. <laughs> this is, it's, it's all part of the lie. The, the, but, you know, the, in the dissenting position, in the dissents, uh, uh, Scalia and uh, Roberts and Alito point to what's going to happen. We already know it's happening. And uh, this fulfilled George Orwell's dictum that, quote, the more a society drifts from the truth, the more it will hate those who speak it, unquote. So we can expect the, uh, the church to become an even greater object of hatred because, as I told Father Scalia when he asked me to address the priest of this diocese, you're the last man standing. And so they're going to come after you. Why is there such silence on this issue? Why, is, why, why the eerie quietness? I found one reason in uh, St. Augustine's City of God, Book 1, Chapter 9. Quote, we tend culpably to evade our responsibility when we ought to instruct and admonish them, the ill-doers, the evildoers. Sometimes even with sharp reproof and censure, either because the task is irksome or because we are afraid of giving offense. Or it may be that we shrank from incurring their enmity for fear that they may hinder and harm us in worldly matters in respect either of what we eagerly seek to attain or of what we weakly dread to lose." Unquote. Like your job or your friends. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as you know, I mentioned uh, 1935 Germany and the passage of the uh, Nuremberg Laws. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of the great Germans who refused to accede. A courageous pastor who was training other young pastors to resist the Nazis. And then who himself so courageously participated in the plot to assassinate Hitler and ended up hanging on a meat hook as a consequence. So here's what he said in relation to Nazi tyranny. Quote, silence in the face of evil is evil. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act." Unquote. It's like a gloss on St. Augustine, isn't it? Well, 
All of this does not mean that the homosexual movement will succeed in the long run. Dream worlds do not last. Such dreams invariably turn into nightmares from which people eventually try to wake themselves. After all, reality still exists and cannot be banished. Um, in the interim, how much damage this is going to cause uh, will very much depend on us and what we do and whether we remain silence, silent or whether we remain inactive. Yes, uh, could you speak to the issue of the bishops, archbishops, and cardinals of the church and the pope? What are they saying? What are they not saying? And why? Well, I already said something about silence, didn't I? <laughs> I, uh, I did read a number of the statements made by individual bishops in their own dioceses in response to Obergefell. There were a few very strong ones, very good ones. Our own bishop here, thank God, is very strong. And there were some uh, very weak ones that uh, began with, well, the first thing is we all need to respect each other. Your civilization has just fallen to hell and that's what you're going to Better not to say anything than say that. Use it as an opportunity, at least for catechesis or reaffirming 2,000 years of church teaching. Uh, so some of it was very weak. Some of it was very good. So it's a very mixed report on that. Uh, I know that the Holy Father, when he was Cardinal Archbishop in Buenos Aires, said that the movement for homosexual marriage could not be accounted for uh, on the face of it from the reasons offered and that it was satanic. Uh, I haven't heard an update on that. And the Vatican seemed awfully quiet about the vote in Ireland. So, my inclination is always to give the Pope the benefit of doubt, particularly since I know what he has said in the past about this issue. Uh, the church is the last man standing. So we as faithful Catholics need to get behind it, support it, because it will be persecuted. When someone asks what's going to happen next, it's very easy to see what's going to happen next. The militant movement will demand marriage, and when they don't get it, they now have a constitutional basis on which to say their civil rights have been violated. The 501c3 and the tax-exempt status is going to be taken from these institutions or from the little sisters' nursing homes, and they, won't, they can't operate on that financial basis. So they'll either have to comply or fold. Um, and that's going to be a very hard time. And when the tax issue isn't enough to deal with recalcitrance, there's always jail. 
You know, I don't want to get too gloomy here. I actually had to stop when we have to remember Cardinal George's uh, full remarks about <clears throat> Cardinal George in Chicago when he said, I'll, I'll die in uh, my bed. My successor will die in jail and his successor will be a martyr. It may actually happen faster than that. But we have to remember Cardinal George's final sentence. Quote, his successor will pick up the shards of a ruined society and slowly help rebuild civilization as the church has done so often in human history, unquote. And if necessary, that's what it and we will do again. This is an opportunity, you know. As depressing as you may find this, this is an opportunity to help rebuild because we have to do it from the bottom up. And that's, that's the only sound way to build is from the bottom up. Sorry, was there another? Um, following up with that then, how do we encourage our clergy to speak out more about this? Because for instance, I know a lot of people in this room um, along with myself, we're at the recent Fairfax County School Board meetings, um, fighting against their ultimate decision regarding teaching our children, including my 15-year-old, about gender identity. And there was not one priest in the entire room. There was a minister from the Unitarian Church. She was a lesbian. She was there with her, sp quote, spouse. But I think a room full of Roman callers could have sent a strong message. So. Um, I noticed that my pastor isn't here tonight, nor any of his um, other priests from our church. And so what can I, as a um, member of my church, do to encourage the priests to come out more? That's a very good question. By the way, I think they probably weren't there because these are public schools. I'd give them a little bit of a uh, room on that one. However, one of my friends, Joe Serkovich, went to that meeting. I wasn't able to go. Uh, and I suggested a line to ask the school board members that if during the proceedings this evening any of you feel the call of nature, when you go down the hall, will you have any hesitation as whether you should go to the boys' room or the girls' room? And if not, why would you wish to foist this kind of confusion on our children? And as you know, what, only one or two voted against? Two, two people. See how the spread of unreality infects everything, how the universalization of this rationalization is seizing our society? Well, I think you could do just what you have, which is encourage uh, your pastor to speak. Um, as I mentioned to you, dear Father Scalia asked me to speak to the priests. Now, of course, not all the priests of the diocese came. They couldn't. But nonetheless, to have a meeting and a talk with them, which I did uh, you know, over a year ago. And in fact, I was with him and some other very fine priests uh, Sunday evening at a reception for courage, of which he is the uh, chairman. And there were several members of courage to give their testimony of how they were helped by this wonderful, wonderful group to live lives of chastity. Even if they couldn't change their orientation, they still had the dignity to live uh, lives of chastity. They don't let homosexuality define them. Uh, and so gr groups like Courage, how about 
asking for a presentation in your parish uh, by Courage. There was a film put out by Courage called The Everlasting Hills, or someone remember the name? What, the full name? The Desire of the Everlasting Hills. Have you seen this? Have all of you? Go online. You can, you can Google the Desire of the Everlasting Hills and see if you can watch this with dry eyes. As it goes through these discussions by various homosexuals and lesbians who now live chastely and who return to the church This documentary is the greatest thing I have ever seen on the power of confession. And the way these brave people talk about their experience of returning to confession is one of the most moving things I have ever seen in my life. Talk about God's mercy and love and who loves these people. Go watch The Desire of the Everlasting Hills. Ask that it be shown in your parish. Uh, there are a number of such uh, resources and, and courageous people uh, fighting against this. I want, I'm in touch with a man in New Jersey, a Jewish gentleman, Arthur Goldberg, who co-founded a group called Jonah, J-O-N-A-H. It's an acronym, I can't remember. It's aimed at Jewish homosexuals. It's basically, it's a foundation, you know, educational foundation, refers homosexuals who wish to change to groups that do reparative therapy. Well, they were sued under a consumer fraud a case in New Jersey. And uh, it, the, the court found against them, not one expert witness for Arthur Goldberg was allowed to testify including Dr. Joseph Nicolosi, the head of NARTH, N-A-R-T-H, if you want to know the major reparative therapy group in the United States is under N-A-R-T-H, that's an acronym, NARTH. Because the judge said, anyone who thinks that homosexuality is a disorder or there's anything wrong with homosexual behavior belongs to the Flat Earth Society and will be not allowed to testify in this court. We have a question coming in um, online from Daniel in Pompano Beach, Florida. He says, what would you say is our next step? Should we somehow try to, f try to fight this ruling legislatively or should we battle this like we currently battle the Roe v. Wade decision and hope the court will one day rule against its decision? Um, well, I think this is uh, uh, refusal to comply. This is not a law. Anything against the laws of nature and the nature's God is evidently, this ruling is, is not a law. As you know, in the South, in Texas and down in Arkansas, there are courageous court clerks who refuse uh, to certify or participate in homosexual marriages. And of course, they're going to be sued and fired. Thank you, Mr. Riley. When did the term sodomy become culturally taboo? 
and how has that contributed to the current situation? It became culturally taboo uh, as a result of the strategy uh, out, laid out in the book I referred to 25 years ago that we have to divert people's attention away from what we actually do because they'll find it repellent and present ourselves as a, as a persecuted minority suffering from this strange disease. Uh, and it worked. And to tell you the honest truth, uh, the sodomy and the other homosexual behavior is repellent. Polite people simply don't talk about it. I was a junior at Georgetown University before someone told me what homosexuals do, and I said, you must be kidding. I mean, it's nobody, it, there's a, just a, a yuck factor there that keeps people from doing it. But, but this played into the homosexual strategy of we're just nice people you know, next door who love each other. And uh, what it's really about is our civil rights rather than the moral nature of this behavior. And the best comeback, uh, Bob Marshall was telling me when a homosexual contacted him, very upset about what he's trying to do, and uh, challenged him, well, what is it that homosexuals do? And I don't want to repeat Bob's answer because this is a family audience. But he said, and guess what? The other, the other, this is on a telephone conversation. The guy's very quiet. Because there's no comeback. That is what you do. And you know it. And I think he ended by saying, thanks for being honest, didn't he, Bob? So we have to tell the truth about what this is. Also, as you know, how, why did that work? Well, you look at the uh, media, you look at the business elite, and they're all involved in the rationalization because they all have reasons in their private lives for this cultural revolution. I'll be in the back. Thank you, Duncan. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.